and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. You are listening to a bonus episode. This is free content, y'all. Getting it free. Two podcasts in a week. I don't know if we can keep this blistering pace up, but we will try. Uh, We're here, as I promised, with a bonus episode and a guest will be with us in a second. We're going to be covering Edgar Allan Poe uh, again because he just warrants it. He deserves a double look, I think. And I had a friend that was eager to talk about his works and probably cover the three stories from the regular pod. But hey, we might get into some extra stuff. On the other end of the line is old friend of mine, Drew McCann. Drew, how are you? I'm doing well. Give me the Poe. Yeah, it's Poe time, man. It's the uh, the Ravens are calling and it's the witching hour. Oh, I'm ready to do some witching. Yeah, I don't even know if he has witches in any of his stories. Definitely not the three I read, but he's he's got to have some witches around, I think. Not that I know of, but regardless, I'm ready to do some witching. Yeah, yeah, and that's the attitude we're going to need here to make it through uh, through some more Poe. Let's um, let's start with some good informal chatter about our history with Poe. Do you remember the first time you read him? First time I read Poe, I'm pretty sure was eighth grade English class. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, same. I'm pretty sure it was middle school, and I think it was The Pit and the Pendulum, um, which upon re-googling and re-Wikipediaing, that really can't be a verb. Shouldn't turn that into a verb. Uh, After searching for that story, I learned, because I haven't read that since probably middle school, I learned that it's some kind of it deals with like the Spanish Inquisition and apparently it's very historically inaccurate or something. Have you I don't know if you've revisited that one. I don't know if I've ever read that one, actually. And that sounds like a really bizarre place to start from a middle schooler. I know, right? Kind of grim stuff. It's just about a guy who's like pinned down and is about to be cut in half by the swinging pendulum axe. So pretty b- bleak stuff, though. I may have also read the Raven poem in middle school is that what you read first what were your impressions do you remember back that far honestly the first thing i'm pretty sure i read in eighth grade was the uh fall of the house of usher Uh, Mm. very ironic for today and i think the raven was after that but i also think i read the raven in ninth grade or tenth grade you know something along those lines Mm -hmm. um and definitely The Raven, I think, stood out to me the most because I do remember watching The Simpsons rendition of The Raven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Pop culture-wise, I think The Raven, I'm pretty sure when The Raven, so just for context, we're recording this on January 15th, the Baltimore Ravens, the team, which are explicitly named after, because Poe is from Baltimore, or like live there. So they're explicitly named after that character, that story. Anyway, when they lost this past weekend in the uh, playoffs, NFL playoffs, there were all kinds of Twitter jokes about Nevermore. Like, when are they playing Nevermore? Like, that's got to be probably the most prominent Poe pop culture thing, I think. It was always my go-to example to show how cool Poe was when I inevitably taught Edgar Allan Poe to my high school students. Right, man. Purple and black. Best uniforms for my money. Well, maybe, actually. I never really thought about that that much, but I like the purple and black. Yeah, I mean, you know, bring it to the NFL. It'll be cool. The kids will like it. They def- the Ravens definitely do have that street cred as far as the jerseys go and just like, oh, yeah, you are a hard-ass motherfucker if you're wearing a Ravens jersey. Yeah, you got to be bold to wear the colors that pop so much. So you just transitioned me perfectly, actually, then, into a question I had written down for us just for discussion topics. 
so you did teach Poe when you were a teacher, just to be clear for listeners, new or old. I taught uh, middle school for five years after graduating college. I was an English teacher. And then Drew also taught, I think, for also five years, but I'll let you clear that up, uh, high school English. Uh, I never taught Poe. I mostly taught sixth graders. And when I taught eighth grade for one year, I didn't even think to teach him. Um, and teaching it, I, you know, rereading this, it's like, would I pick this for middle schoolers now? Probably not. Maybe one of, maybe a shorter story that had some complexity to it. But to me, it just seems. I don't know. It seems a little dense. Uh, maybe I'm just reading it or overreading it these days. But okay, so what did you teach and how did it go? I originally started teaching Poe just because it was in my personal library, something that I could refer back to when I first started teaching. So something I could like, easily equip uh, as terms of like, especially like, the Raven was the thing I really taught when I first started teaching. And then after a few years, and I even went to a few different workshops that use Poe and actually went to a specific workshop just about Poe, a full day long workshop on Poe. Yeah, that's oh. how nerdy I am. I cool. recognize and I realized that Poe is the perfect author when looking at tone because mm -hmm. obviously he has a very particular tone no matter what the story or poem it is you're reading but also because of how uh, each stanza's tone is different like you can say like okay yeah it's dark but if you look at like each stanza maybe like each paragraph it it forces the reader to actually see like okay yeah this is dark but maybe this one's a little bit more impending maybe this one's a little bit more torturous and maybe this one's a little bit more saccade so it really forces you to examine like okay yeah overall it's one tone but when you look a little bit differently actually like each paragraph is different yeah, that's a good point. He certainly can shift it in the narration. The way he does first-person narration is intriguing and probably, yeah, could be taught in a lot of rich ways. It's funny to hear you say that about the shifting tones because as a current like tutor for standardized testing, those tests never take authors or passages that have shifting tones just because it's incredible. It's already hard enough to make a standardized test question about tone anyway since it's so it's a kind of ephemeral thing to pin down. And then let alone if they took a passage that had like three distinct shifting tones, I don't think they could ever do that on a standardized test. So that's kind of funny to hear you talk about it that way. Yeah, that's absolutely true with the shifting tone. And it, it is a very high level of, as terms of reading wise, which is why I would always use it with ninth graders. So it was also an opportunity for like vocabulary building and also just like, hey, you really need to sit and dissect some lines to really help you understand it. So it's always like a really good precursor to, to get into some Shakespeare, which I always inevitably did with my kids. Yeah, I think that's wise to kind of work them backwards. I mean, you have to get them prepared almost in layers for increasingly unfamiliar versions of English, you know, like you have to just keep walking them back in history. Maybe another, here's something 50 years ago, then a hundred, then 150. And yeah, it's like, it's pretty challenging to get them used to the rhetorical styles and just the vocabulary too is challenging. Um, okay. Did it go well? I'd always usually start with the Raven because it's okay. Like here's the culture shock in terms of the heavy vocabulary and you know, just a lot of words that we might not use in the modern English. So that I would always have to like act out while I did it because they would be in it for maybe like the first couple of stanzas, but then as it goes on, they're like, okay, you're losing me. You're losing me. You're losing me. Yeah. And yeah. they also just don't find it scary. 
Of course, you're right. Yeah, if we'll talk about that. Right. It, this compared to like the horror movies they watch, they're like, yeah, this isn't scary, but that's not why I use it for. I use it more for tone. And, but then when you, I would use it's short stories, and I actually would use the Casco Montiato to kind of get into that torture and that like tension building, they would get a little bit mm-hmm. more into that. Right. Yeah, I just, I'm unconvinced, um, though I know there's been some pretty experimental kind of like horror, mystery horror stuff written in the last, like, I don't know, 50 years. I, I'm just unconvinced after rereading this that literature is even the right way to deliver horror at all. I just feel like movies in every way can eclipse it. You know, it's like every, every art medium kind of has a strength in my view anyway. They all kind of have a purpose or a little role to fill. Um, at least that's, again, that's how I view them. But it just seems like, man, if you love feeling afraid and the primal sensation, I just can't imagine why you would go back to this. It seems like for tone pieces and like you said, kind of disturbing things, it works extremely well and maybe even has some commentary in it too. But yeah, I don't, I could see why your kids would react that way. In terms of like seeking out horror, I would go to my first medium being filmed if I want to get a little bit of that spook scare. But I also agree with you in that I do not, if the second there's a jump scare in a movie, I'm already out because that's the yeah. easiest scare. There's nothing really that I have to do in terms of like just show up something and I'm scared. But yeah. I did even find myself when I was reading the house, the fall of the house of Usher, like really kind of feeling that eerie sensation. I already knew it was going to happen, but just like that tension because I think he's also one of the best authors just in terms of like how to build tension, which we'll get into later on. Mm-hmm. And I also think that a lot of the Stephen King fans out there would wildly disagree with you about uh, how his books are much scarier than say like the movies that are inspired by him. Cause every yeah. person right. it's like whether it read it or the shining has always said that the books are always scarier. Yeah, and I know there's, um, I bought this for my brother many Christmases ago uh, as a gift, but there's that House of Leaves book, which really does weird things with the formatting and page layouts. And like, there's definitely been some experimentation. King is an interesting one because I've never read a single book of his, not really even intentionally. It's just sort of like, I always associated with him with horror. So by the time I realized he had other genres, it was kind of just like, well, uh, you know, why would I? I'm not sure. It's maybe I'm just a lazy writer or a reader. But yeah, I've never read a King book, though I've seen plenty of the movie adaptations. I actually just read my first Stephen King book last year, reading Doctor Sleep, but that wasn't really oh, horror. Yeah. It was more adventure, um, like mind trippy than like some of his past works. But yeah, my fiance and like a lot of her best friends are always reading Stephen King, so I can attest that. Oh no, interesting. They they go to literature for that horror. It's funny because I I mean I do feel sometimes horrified while reading literature, but in the either existential way or in the uh, terms of like relationships crumbling. There are a lot of scenarios that literature does best that I find very disturbing, frightening, and, you know, like depressing or off-putting, but I, it's not, it will never trigger in me, or I guess never, has never triggered in me the same feeling of just like a jump scare in a movie with an audio cue, with like a a harsh, you know, give me a shrill note and like a where, and that is not, it's not even close to the same sensation, I think. 
Yeah, because that's also a cheap scare and that will like get you to jump up. But there have been plenty mm-hmm. examples of horror movies that have when I return to them, just thinking about them, you know, two weeks later, I do recognize like, oh, that idea is terrifying. Like specifically with get out and um Oh, when you fall back, what is that called? When you go into your head. Oh, the, place. The yeah, the, place. yeah, the psychological like trick or yeah. And, like that idea actually truly does terrify me. So it it does happen out there where just like a concept will scare me and to get me to will scare me for much longer than just a jump scare. And I try not to be, you know, I try engage with the culture as they say. Like I've seen if if a horror movie, quote unquote is getting just outrageous reviews or a lot of press or whatever. I'll, you know, I'll occasionally dive in. I, I did see Get Out, um, which I have very complicated feelings about. But overall, I see the merit in it for sure. I just, I take issue with anyone who says it's not a horror movie. Like, just call it what it is, man. A, a guy stabs a guy to death with a deer antler at the end, you know? Like, <laughs> I think it, <laughs> it is what it is. And it's fine, you know? That doesn't mean it doesn't have artistic merit. Like it can be both things. But I, yeah, I felt I felt like I was betrayed when people were just like, just go, just watch it. It's not even scary. It's no horror. I'm just like, man, I, I think you and I are speaking different languages. You know, even when they in that movie when they do a quick jumpy cut to the the maid in the window and she's just mm-hmm. like creepily staring. It's a jump cut with a loud sound cue. I'm like, man, that's horror shit. Like they're doing the horror thing. It's I don't I get that it's not dark out and she's not like holding a knife or killing someone, but like that's horror stuff, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just is. I don't know. That I've I had a strong reaction to that, but it was interesting. Um, what was the one? It follows. Like I watched that. That had some very off-putting shots that did not have jumps in them. It also had a ton of jump scares too. But yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's things out there that I'll try. Midsummer, at some point I'll watch that, you know, when I'm finally feeling like bored one day and I'm just like, okay, fuck it. I've avoided it for now, but I'll probably watch that at some point. Midsummer is horror, but I don't believe there are any jump scares in it. And full disclosure, Midsummer is my number two movie of 2019. Oh, great. Okay. Well, let's not spin off into a podcast about that, though. We, you know, I'd like to. <laughs> we'll try and focus on Poe for now as much as we can anyway. <laughs> but that's interesting. I, um, I, yeah, at some point I'll watch that movie. It, the curiosity will get the better of me and I'll just, you know, I'll watch it at home where I can pause it or, you know, whatever. Um, let's, let's transition into some specific textual stuff then. Is there a story you want to begin with in particular? You want to start with Usher? Is that still your favorite that you reread? Usher is my least favorite. It was then and it still is. However, rereading it now, I did enjoy it more than I did in the past, but it is still my least favorite. Okay. Let's, well, let's start there then. I don't mind starting at the low end. Uh, the only question I wrote down was about the sister, since I guess just as an FYF to the listeners, these addendum podcasts are, we're going to go, you know, full spoilers if you're even worried about that. We're going to discuss everything in full detail. We're not going to like hold back or pause or, you know, we're not doing that. So be warned, I suppose. But anyway, the sister character in that story is the only thing I didn't really want to touch on the other pod, just because it's, it really is the key twist of the story. It's the only thing that's like a huge surprise at the end. And so I didn't really want to touch it. Did, do you want to talk about that? Do you find it to be significant or interesting as a character turn, as a, I don't know, conflict? It's obviously the biggest aspect horror of 
that story, how she is revived from the dead. And it's, I, even from a child and reading it now, just understand like that is what kills the brother, Usher as it, as it were. And as far as like what it means, what is the symbolism of it? And I always took it like almost like very literal that she is his family, like slash a part of himself because it's his twin. So it's basically like himself like ending himself. So it's like his family ending him. So it could be something about like your inheritance, that which you are given from your parents and then onward. Like that is what's going to be your doom. Like you can't control it. It's whatever is given to you by them. That is ultimately what's going to be the end of you. Yeah, and I, I looked back to this is another te- aspect of the text I didn't touch on in the regular episode that I actually thought was probably the best part of the entire short story novella, whatever it is, um, which is the poem in the middle, the poem that the brother is like obsessed with, the haunted palace. That where after reading it, the narrator says essentially, I felt like at that moment I finally understood what was going on in their house with their family. But in that, you know, if you want to unpack some like symbols or whatever. In that story, there's a king who is very wise and successful, and they're they're prospering. It's on well, it's for me. It's on twenty three. Lord knows what page it's on for you, but and it's you know there's certain things you can pluck out there, like wanders in the happy valley through two luminous windows, saw spirits moving musically. Like the two luminous windows, you could think you know the siblings are thriving when they have their their family members or their patriarch is there, the king is there, and then as soon as he goes, it's just the the poem ends in such a vague way. That and I feel like the whole text is kind of suffused with that vagueness. I don't. Again, you'd have to do some real literary unpacking to get an answer, which I think. I mean, for me, I guess makes it kind of exciting. But I could see why people would be frustrated by the ending. There's no, yeah, the ending's definitely not definitive. Yeah, it's definitely left up for interpretation, and I just honestly remember even learning about this when that eighth grade. And how just literal it is. That's why it's probably my least favorite of his. And how the house falls because the brother didn't continue the family line. So like that whole family line like dies. That's why the house falls and collapses on itself. The brother yeah. didn't succeed in doing what you're supposed to do by being the last in your line. So that's why it just ends and it's, the legacy is over. Yeah, and I think... I think that's the the clear interpretation I walked away from the text with. I think that's probably the safest way, quote unquote, to say it. The only thing that threw a wrench in my system about it was, and I don't remember where, because I do very light research for these, you know, Wikipedia and Google, maybe I'll read like one article if I find something. But somewhere I encountered the idea that their relationship is incestuous and that's why it's so rotten and so vile and like that's why everything's going wrong. And I just... It's one of those things you read, and this happens in, I feel like, in a literature capacity or in that major or whatever. Sometimes you see something like that, and you're so struck by how unusual or like how you didn't anticipate it that I can't tell if it's just like a brilliant thing or if I misread or if I'm underthinking or something. Because I didn't, I would never have guessed that in any regard. I mean, I guess you can pour over a text and find almost whatever you want, but I'm not sure if you thought of that at all while you were reading. No, not at all. That's why I'm honestly trying to look, like flip through some pages as like some sort of proof because I did not get a hint of that whatsoever. Just I mean, yeah, I, the the poem I go back to again. It says at the end of this fifth stanza in that poem, it says, uh, "And round about his home, the glory that blushed and bloomed 
is but a dim remembered story of the old time entombed. And so it's like, gosh, is that, could that be a subtle reference to some older time when the family line was like bred within the family line? But that's, I mean, you're doing so many inferential jumps to think that because it could just mean, well, the king's dead now. There's no more king, which means if the family can't produce heirs or if there's no person to take up, you know, the estate, then it just falls and collapses and there's no leadership even vaguely. Yeah, there are some jumps there that you have to get for that incest timeline. So kudos to those people who could figure that out. Yeah, I I honestly didn't even click past. That was a total headline move. I just like saw that as a headline or as a quick idea. And I just thought, man, that's okay. I mean, maybe. I had never even considered that at all, uh, considering how she comes back to life and then kills him. Um, yeah, I, I thought Usher, I, I think it was my favorite to read because of the components that it, it had that vagueness to it. I think, you know, you're going to come away from Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado with an exceptionally clear idea of at least the plot of it. Um, if not, you know, there's some trickery, but it, you'll you'll not be confused. And I did mm-hmm. kind of enjoy the way that Usher settled in at the end in kind of a vague way. And also, I just think it's the it does have the most thorough, I guess, as you were saying, like tone of just a really oppressive, rotting place. Yeah, it definitely has the most consistent tone throughout. And the ending, yeah, I do love the ending. And that's what actually really got me to kind of the pull through because I knew that's obviously the climax of the story. But again, while I read it and how just that suspense of, can't you hear that? And our narrator's like, I don't hear anything. But then he did start to hear that noise. So like that did get me to keep on reading it. It was really engaging me. Yeah, and the the dialogue, I should say, right before the end when the brother's speaking his final like maddening speech and he's just interjecting with a lot of like ha-has and oh, rather, and then he asks a bunch of questions and he's yelling. And I thought that that, I mean, again, to me, the, the primal scream that a person can just capture in a, in a film or audio, I it, it to me, it just will never be as potent. This text will never be as potent as that, but it is well-written dialogue and it's it's pretty creepy. It's eerie that you can feel him just mentally deteriorating. Yeah, that whole paragraph is why we love Poe because of just the dichotomy of trying to be sane, but then also he'll just have like maybe one or two words of him going over the madness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great dialogue. Well, let's jump to, Hey, why don't we just rank these bad boys? You know, listening is fun. <laughs> let's just do that. Sure. What's the, what was your second favorite one of the three that you reread? Second favorite will probably be telltale heart. Sure. Okay. What did you you? find? Did you find the narration really compelling on a second read or interesting? That was the thing I kind of latched onto. Oh, yeah. This narrator is probably the most engaging out of all of them. And I mean, that first paragraph, like you discussed in their first pod, is you can't get any better as a first paragraph in anything. No. Yeah, I completely agree. Anything in particular? It says Harkin, which, you know. Lighthouse connection. We we love a good hark. Mm, I love a good hark. Yeah, yeah. Cry, cried out to the oceans and cried out to the sea. Uh, is there anything in particular that grabs you? Any lines or any other parts of the narr- narrative? Because I agree about the beginning. It's like astoundingly uh, economic and uh, and unsettling too. And again, it creates that suspense because it's this narrator trying to tell you, "I'm not." crazy i'm saying i'm very saying if anything i'm 
incredibly uh, intelligent in what I just did. And so you already know, okay, well, this dude is clearly insane and he did something. Right. Okay, what is it they did? And then if he's so smart, why did he get caught? Like everything is built within that first paragraph. Mm-hmm. And as far as the whole story goes, obviously it's very economic and how short it is. Um, but I think it's the second to last paragraph that really kind of, I think, reveals, going back to that first part we are talking about, what is it that Poe wants us to be afraid of? Mm-hmm. It's where he's, okay, so the cops are in the house and he's hearing the noise and he's wondering, they have to hear it. And he says, quote, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. Anything was better than this agony. So it's that limbo of you thinking you have something, like that thing that you want, that you desire the most. You have it. But then maybe in reality you don't. And so that's driving you crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, do I have it? Do I not have it? And so it's that limbering in between that drives you crazy. Yeah, sort of the maddening middle ground. I was just looking back over the first page in my copy, and I just noticed this funny juxtaposition. And this is again, if this is why Poe's a, a very rewarding reread. Um, in the second paragraph, he says he's talking about the old man who he kills, and he says, "For his gold, I had no desire." But then the immediate next sentence is, "I think it was his eye," and that's a capital I. So it's like I could see if if you read this narrative. As a police, like, I think it would be not that difficult an interpretation to say this is like the police report, you know, afterward. It's like this is the (laughs) this is what he would be mumbling to himself in the jail cell or wherever in the interrogation like that. Those two lines juxtapose like that kind of could betray him a bit. Um, The money aspect never comes up again. And so, again, it's like, am I going to base my entire reading on? a sentence and then a transition. I don't know, but it is an intrigue, you know, little bits of depth like that. It's, there's all, all kinds of sprinklings. That was what I wrote down in my notes from that first paragraph, that this was some sort of in jail confession, yeah, either in that interrogation room, because it, it, the secret's already out and things get discovered. So now he's just like, Oh, okay. Well, I'll let you, t- I'll tell you everything, but just don't make me mad. I'm very smart. in what I did, I'm not crazy. Right. Yeah. No, I think it it definitely has the tone, the kind of jumpy, uh, uh, just unreliable narrator-ish tone of someone who is either admitting to a crime or being forced to admit to a crime or dodging it or being, you know, coerced or intimidated or trying to avoid talking about a crime that they didn't do. I mean, it it just has the right um, kind of skittery nature. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, then what did you think of the Cask of Amontillado, which apparently is your favorite? I'm just going to give you the mic on this one. Run me through what you appreciate so much about it. The question I wrote was about Montresor, which I only learned after I posted the pod. That's the dude's name. I thought it was like a title because the guy does call him mm-hmm. Montresor. But, what I, you know, that's small matters. Um, did you have some in particular insight on him or what did you find about it that engaged you so much? Well, I too thought it was a title and I used to teach that to my kids, actually, that used to be a title. Love it. Love it. And it was my last year that one of the kids actually like kind of did some research. It's like, no, that is his name. I was like, oh my God. I lost all this credit with these kids. (laughs) Um, Love it. Got to leave then. That's when you just retire from the profession. mm -hmm. I agree. The first time I made my uh, first small grammatical error, I also walked out. Uh, same day. 
And so, again, just like the Telltale Heart, that first paragraph, it hooks you into the narrator and you sympathize with him because he's somebody who has been bullied, has been tortured by this constant bully in his life. And he wants to get revenge in it. And that's like, oh, yeah, I, I would love that, too. Okay, I want you to have it. So, like, you're immediately in this narrator. Like, obviously, unlike maybe the other ones, the house of the follow, follow the house of Usher narrator really isn't much about him. So there's not much to connect to. And the tell tell our heart, you can't really connect to him at all. Because you're like, oh, okay, well, you're obviously very crazy. It's hard for me to connect to you. But yeah. this one, you're in from the start. Like, oh, you want revenge? We all want revenge. Okay, cool, man. Go get your revenge on. Right, yeah, and then you're put through the slow agony of it, and it kind of draws it out. And then just the suspense. So you know, okay, Montessori is going to get his revenge on Fortunato. You know that's going to happen because that's what this whole story is going to be about. But it's, again, that impending doom that is constant as they go deeper and deeper and deeper into the vault. And uh, the Montessori is like, try, um, sorry, the Fortunato is like kind of curious like why do we keep on going this far why like why is this happening they just like it's it deeper and deeper and deeper and it, it it does get to a point especially with all the kids when i teach this that it would just get like way too bogged down with vocabulary like, like when is this going to happen but then get to the actual torture bit and obviously like the brick building right he's, he's getting his enjoyment out of it and mm-hmm. he's finally getting his revenge. And that's when you can kind of see, like, oh, man, like this is, he's, he's going beyond the line here. So that's when you obviously kind of start to distance yourself from the narrator. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, again, I think the, a greater theme for Poe and a lot of his stories is, my question I'm going to ask you, sure. who is it that wins in the end? Is it Montessori or is it Fortunato? Well, that's a good, it's an interesting question. I think, I mean, as a personal reaction... You can't beat being alive. That much is certain. I think as a liter as a kind of a question of literary analysis, it's complex enough at the end. I think he's unsatisfied because there's a couple things at the end that complicate it. I agree with you in that. Um, at the end, when he hears his voice, he says uh, he, it was a sad voice which he had difficulty recognizing as the noble Fortunato. So even then, you know, he's kind of like praising the guy's i don't know status he also says that the voice made the hairs on his uh head stand up and so even he is a little creeped out by the kind of torture he's managed to put the person through and then mm-hmm. also and i talked about this on the pod but you literally you never know anything that's ever happened you just hear from the narrator that it's been a lot of injuries but you don't know any of it the only explanation he ever gives is yes for the love of God. He never explains anything. That's the only sincere thing he says to him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so, and then it seems like, cause he calls back to him multiple times and the guy says nothing back, just a jingling of the bells. My heart mm-hmm. grew sick. So it seems like he was, what he wanted was, you know, an apology. And that's what I, in the pod, I mentioned this too, but it's just like, it seems like he's just sadly wants a little communication. You know, maybe if he apologized or something, or he started like listing off the uh, the grievances that he'd had and apologizing, maybe he would just let him out. I'm not sure. He does seem kind of pathetic at the end. There's a those that evidence mm. I think is strong enough. I don't know if you if that's what you meant by it. I do like those words of pathetic and how I what I have interpreted that that as. 
Fortunato saw this opportunity like, all right, I'm not getting out of this. I'm, I'm locked up. He's building up a brick wall. This is over. It's done with. So right before Montessori puts in that final brick, he's, he's still trying to eat it up. He's still trying to get every last little bit out of this revenge dish that he's created for himself. So as he's like trying to get that last spoon filled, he's calling out to Fortunato that one last time. He wants to hear him crying out. That's what like, as you comment in your pod, the enjoying of like the for love of God. Yes. Like he's reveling in this moment so much, but Fortunato is not giving that to him. He knows this is what you want right now. So I'm going to take that moment away from you. And that's what is ultimately going to drive you crazy is that I get the last laugh out of all of this because at that very end, you weren't able to get the last true taste of this whole moment because, and I'm going to jingle my bells to let you know, no, no, I didn't die. I'm still living. I'm just not going to give you that full satisfaction. Oh, like a taunting move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if his last lines betray that a bit. He does seem to lack the, you know, when he cries out for the love of God, he's, that seems like a desperate plea. But that that could be true. He also, I mean, for uh, Montresor does say he he felt sick when he finished it, but then mm-hmm. he immediately excuses it and says, "Oh, it's the dampness of the catacombs that made it so." And who knows? I mean, you could read that as excuse making for feeling guilty and maybe disgusted with what you've done. It could also just be him saying yeah i'm tired of being down here you know let's get out. i'm <laughs> gonna go back to the party or the carnival or whatever yeah that that last paragraph is what i would always go back to with the kids and kind of show like well obviously the your first thought is going to be oh we got away with it uh fortune dies okay great like he got his revenge but i think there's a lot more there than the first read of the show yeah that's yeah that's certain it does reward as really, you know, anything that you're going to sink time into, it does reward, I don't know, a slower reading, you know, a closer reading. It's you know, If you're just blitzing through it for spooks and scares, I think Poe is going to severely let you down. But mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you want something dense with tone, as you is kind of outright said or said at the beginning, then, yeah, I think it, it has that in such dense ways and it's quite intriguing to unpack it. And that's what makes Poe Poe. That's why he's absolute required read for everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. He, I noticed that Penguin, this is a small tangent, but after I finished this, so two, well, actually two things here. I'm just going to try and rein in my thoughts. Um, this made a great case for rereading, which I quite literally never do with anything ever, except for like snippets or quotes, maybe a chapter. I just don't, there's just too much stuff to, to get to in, in life that I almost never reread something. But this was rewarding. Maybe for me and my personal view, maybe after not reading something for like 10 to 15 years is when I should reread it because I have had forgotten most of the plots and the language just strikes me entirely differently than it would have in high school. And so I don't know if you're an avid rereader, but I never reread anything except again in really small bursts. And this was this felt rewarding to do it. And I never do. I'm glad that Poe made you feel that way because I would say I am a fairly uh, avid rereader in all the moves I've had to have done in my life where I finally have cemented myself in a more permanent spot. I've had to carry just books and like boxes and boxes of books. Yeah. And it did get to that point. I was like, why am I carrying all these books if I've only read mm-hmm. them once? So I have like really started to go back to reread them. And now obviously do I get to enjoy the read I had the first time going back like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot about this subplot. Totally forgot about this character, but I'm, truly reading it almost for the first time 
And I'm just thinking about the last time I read, or the last reread I had was uh, with Watchmen, and yeah. how the whole plotline of Dan, um, uh, Dan Feinberg, uh, not being able to get it up, as it were, unless he had that superhero stature that he feels that he has to have in order to feel like a man is that the owl man that's owl man right yeah that's night owl owl, owl guy a night owl there you go that I, when i first read that watchman when i was like 18 or 19 i was just like oh my god this is so cliche but now when i read it I'm like oh of course like he doesn't feel like a man unless he's wearing that costume unless he's a superhero so i would say that yeah if there's ever like a book that you love 10, 15 years ago, absolutely reread it because A, you're going to enjoy it again and B, I guarantee you're going to get something different out of it this time. Yeah, I think to me, I had a college professor who was very vehement about that point, just kind of said, maybe all you should ever read is the same things over and, you know, just kind of loop back slowly and like keep rereading and make that a big part of your life. I think to me, it's the the distance I would like. And I do think for me, it's an mm-hmm. arbitrary number, but 10 to 15 years feels right to me. Like, I still don't think I'd want to reread much stuff from college. I think I feel pretty firmly about how I took it then. So maybe in another like decade, I can think, oh, that was my favorite novel in college. I wonder, you know, I just, I guess I suppose it's, I, I need more distance, you know, I don't need mm-hmm. to, I know people who reread like Harry Potter. Some people do it like a yearly thing. Like once a year, I'm going to sit down and do this again. And to me that I just cannot wrap my mind around that. That's just not how I want to process like stories or literature, movies, whatever. Yeah. And that, uh, every year type of read, there was, I can't remember what book, but there was like a few stories I would reread every year. Obviously when you're teaching, you do that as well. But yeah, yeah definitely get some distance. Cause that will help in the terms I think of it's... being more enjoyable, but yeah. yeah, like reading Harry Potter every year, I don't, you just kind of wasting your time. There's other things you could be reading. And I have friends who do that with, um, the closest thing I could think of that I know someone who does this too is like, sometimes I'll replay, um, like a Mario game, like Super Mario World. I feel like I know people who do that with games too, though, where they're like, this is my yearly run. Like, I'm going to play Super Mario 64 again this year or something like that. I feel like I know people who do that too. Yeah, we, we've discussed this in the years that I was living in Charlotte when I, almost like a New Year's resolution, I told you. I'm not going to rewatch TV like I rewatch TV. Like, every night I'll put on Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, yeah. Scrubs, like, all the same shows over and over. Because I just realized I have very finite time, and I need to, like, watching more and engaging more. So I've done that with TV shows, movies. I've been yeah. watching a lot more. But it is still enjoyable, and I'm still getting a lot more if I just kind of go back and read a little bit or just, you know, maybe watch like one episode of Parks and Rec and just enjoying that more and, For sure. and seeing the whole my, context of something. My, I'm a hundred percent on board. I, I was, I did that a lot too. My whole thing is now when I eat, you know, like I can eat a meal in like 10 to 20 minutes of a sitcom episode. So that's, that's when I rewatch all that stuff over. But otherwise I agree. It's like, man, if I'm going to use my time to, you know, participate in some, some art or TV or movies, I want it to be new. There's just, you know, so many exciting things to experience that are you'll and you can never catch up so you got to keep running uh, you know the other um kind of a side i wanted to touch on about poe 
So rereading was very fulfilling, which it, uh, surprised me. But it also led me then to look like, okay, well, what else did Poe have? Because I'm sure he wrote prolifically, and he did. And I mm-hmm. found that um, I think it's Penguin also has a collection of it. I don't remember. This is not an advertisement, as always. It's not an ad <laughs> for Penguin. I just that's what the collection is. Um, I think they did a collection of his science fiction writing, and that I might Ooh. try because that's a genre I do really enjoy more than mystery, horror, revenge, and so. Sure. I might have to look into that because I've read if he's done science fiction or something lightly science fiction, I've never read it. I, again, this podcast is not sponsored by Penguin, but the Poe collection I have is called The Portable Edgar Allan Poe by Penguin Classics. Sure. And there are definitely a few stories in here that randomly that I do really enjoy. And they're not so much, I guess they are kind of science fiction because they deal with like the science of death before we really knew a lot about death that are incredibly interesting. I'm looking at particularly the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemir is a great one. Okay. And I also, my favorite Poe piece of literature period is it's always been the murderers in the room morgue, which, because he's been credited as creating the detectives, like the, like literally the detective that term wasn't even existed before he started got writing it. his stories okay like, got it like these stories directly impacted sherlock holmes and the way that they're That's, structured and like i saw that games. claim i saw that claim on his wikipedia page and i thought it was preposterous because i was like man sherlock holmes what about that and then i realized that that was later <laughs> so yes yeah, so i've actually gone back now and for the past few days i have been reading the root uh, the murders of the rube morgue it's a novella. It it is fairly short. Yeah. But I I didn't know this that he used those two characters. It's the Holmes and Wat, Watson characters in two different uh, okay. other stories. So now I'm definitely gonna be reading those. Fascinating, yeah. And that's a monkey, right? That's the whole twist. I feel like I've read that. Isn't it the whole thing that it was like an ape or an escaped gorilla? Yeah, that is obviously the big reveal and who uh, okay. like, the murderer is. And that's that's obviously what I remember. And I would and very teacher of me i would always as far as like some sort of like test review activity like a murder mystery activity i would take like the facts out of that case and i'd have okay kids solve the murder and i'd always tell them if you solve the murder you wouldn't have to take the test obviously no kid ever solved the murder of course yeah setting him up with it and except for that one kid who went and found a copy of the story and then just you know blitz through it Read through the novella really quickly. Cracked the code. Yeah, no kid ever did that. Yeah, yeah, reading. Not that popular anymore, unfortunately. Well, unless you have any final questions, I say we wrap this. We've gone over the 30-minute time limit, which I'm happy to do. But my thoughts on Poe are, you know, as far as recommendations go, I, I think I've said all I have to say. I do hope the listeners take it to heart and give him a try, especially if you're like me and haven't ever read him except for in school. It might be more rewarding than you expect, especially for a reread. Do you have any final questions? Feel free to throw anything out there or any any final thoughts on Poe? No, that was definitely a question that I would have asked you about how was this now rereading it mm-hmm. since you've been in school? Because pretty mm-hmm. much if you're listening to this, you did read Poe in high school and you haven't really thought much about him since outside of maybe the Baltimore Ravens. But right. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Definitely get up on some Poe. You're going to get a lot more out of it now that you're a little bit more adult. And I would bet you that you would still find it creepier than ever. 
Yeah, yeah, or at least, yeah, again, creepy not in the way, you know, a, a horror movie, at least, again, we've said that a lot, but creepy in a tonal, kind of satisfyingly weird way. An eerie way. Yeah. Well, let me set up a quick preview for next week, while I still have listeners, if they've stayed with us this long, and I hope that they have. Uh, next week, we've got Mary Kingsley, who was a Victorian adventurer who kind of traveled throughout, I believe the text I have is about West Africa, but I think it was Africa and maybe Asia, and she chronicled her adventures in journals and things. Mm. It was an intriguing read. I finished it. I'm still prepping, deciding what I want to do with the pod, but here's a spoiler, and I'm saying this and setting this up on purpose because Drew's here. Ooh. I believe my pod next week will heavily involve Indiana Jones. Maybe even to the level that I might have to go watch. See, Drew's going to yell at me now, and we can record it. I'm going to keep it in the recording. <laughs> I've never seen that third Indiana Jones movie, The Crusade. I'm um, literally looking at my Indiana Jones and Last Crusade poster right now. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I've seen the legendary one with the Lost Ark. I remember Because the one- of me. Yes, I remember the one that was mostly jungle stuff that everyone hates because of the woman and the racism or the kid or whatever. I don't remember. You know, I remember parts. Isn't there some kind of trolley ride or something? Yeah, Temple of Doom. Temple uh, of Doom. Of Doesn't that have like a minecart race in it or a minecart ride? You betcha. Okay, that one I remember, part, again, snippets. And I, I 100% remember when they brought it back and I thought it was preposterously stupid, the aliens one. So I know that one just fine. I can talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, we can, we cannot forget about that. The, the Shia LaBeouf, the, the, the goddamn uh, refrigerator one. That's what I should call it. It's the refrigerator <laughs> one. It, that's the only scene in that whole movie that matters because I was like, holy shit, that's what they're doing with Indiana Jones now? I mean, it's one thing to ride a mining cart that's like probably old and rusty. It's another thing to survive a nuclear blast and a several hundred foot fall in a lead refrigerator. Do you think Indiana Jones 5, is this going to be Indiana Jones reflecting on his life as he's dying in the hospital yeah. with radiation poisoning? Yeah, I'll tell you, and I'll give you one better, Drew. You know who I hope directs that shit? Who's the Who's the guy who keeps making, uh, who just made Richard Jewell? You know, the old man. <laughs> Clint Eastwood. Dude, if Clint Eastwood directs the next Indiana Jones, I'll watch that shit. Because I bet it would just be him in a rocking chair like whipping kids off his porch, like literally like doing the crack. Uh, if you saw the mule, which I did not see the mule, but I heard a I lot didn't. about it. I, I don't think that's what Clint would do with Indiana Jones. Yeah, but shit. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's the Indiana Jones we deserve, man. I don't know. That's the Indy. I, I, I don't want Spielberg. Get him away from it. Who cares? You're Spielberg. You're wash, man. You made ready player one. You're just way gone. All right. Bring in Clint Eastwood. I need some fresh blood in the Indiana Jones franchise, please. Or we can just leave Indiana Jones be. Yeah, that's fair. Though I wouldn't mind seeing the Shia LaBeouf, like, let's make him method act the shit out of this. Like, make him live (laughs) in the Amazon rainforest for, like, five years or whatever. And just do Survivor Man, Shia LaBeouf, and then turn that into a movie somehow. Just write, put a plot on top of that. I don't know what it would be. Pass. Yeah, at any rate, yeah, fair, okay. It's succinct and accurate. Uh, at any rate, the next pod we'll do, I'm pretty sure that's because I've been trying to shake up the format and do different analyses and whatever, but I'm pretty sure I have an Indiana Jones thing planned. So that is, that's the preview. Hit send, that's it. Oh, I'm yeah, Just tell me when it's up and I'll listen to it. 
Okay. Well, I'm flattered. As always, people of the podcast sphere out there, we appreciate you listening. Hopefully we can rope Drew in. That was not an indie pun, but I'll take it now. Hopefully we can rope Drew in for a future episode. Uh, We've got some interesting stuff coming up after that, too. We actually have some Jane Austen that I'm really looking forward to. She's not an author I like much, but the selections they chose for her actually really fascinate me. So that's coming up couple more episodes ahead nice. uh we'll see if we can get drew back drew thanks so much for coming on any parting words to the people anything you want to plug oh god i wasn't prepared for this uh yeah. i'll just plug poe go read poe yeah and then i think that's the most fitting plug of all and a selfless one and uh that's all the credit to you sir i respect it uh thanks for listening and we will see you between the classics 